This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the story of the 2013 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. Now streaming only on Hulu. It seems never-ending. From two separate shootings after a victim showed up at the wrong house... Tonight, the Clay County prosecutor announces charges against an 85-year-old man accused of shooting a teenager in a case of a mistaken address. 20-year-old Kaylin Gillis, a passenger in that vehicle, was shot and killed around 10 o'clock Saturday night. To this weekend's shooting at a birthday party in Alabama. We do want to begin with another community in mourning tonight, shattered after a mass shooting at a Sweet 16 party. Four people were killed. Their ages range from 17 to 23. And back-to-back mass shootings in Louisville, Kentucky. For the second time in less than a week, residents of Louisville, Kentucky are reeling after a deadly shooting. Late last night, two people were killed, four others injured, when police say someone opened fire in a park filled with hundreds of people. There have been more mass shootings than days so far in 2023. That's according to the nonprofit Gun Violence Archive. It's a grim reality of life in America today. But as community after community reels in the wake of this violence, work is being done on the ground to offer a solution. Just this month, plans for community violence intervention programs were announced in Los Angeles, New Jersey, and Ohio. In the first four years of introducing a community-based program, researchers in Baltimore found homicides dropped by 32 percent. These programs still have many challenges, but they are offering a glimmer of hope for some communities in the U.S. So what exactly do community violence intervention programs do, and how effective are they? We'll get into all that and more after the break. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. This message comes from NPR sponsor FX, presenting Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX is Clipped, now streaming only on Hulu. Support for this podcast and the following message come from the United States Postal Service. Looking to part ways with complicated, expensive, and uncertain shipping services? Then give your business a competitive edge with USPS Ground Advantage. Keep things simple with upfront pricing and no unexpected surcharges. Keep things affordable with some of the lowest prices out there. And keep it all reliable with on-time ground shipments. Turn shipping to your advantage. Learn how at usps.com advantage. USPS Ground Advantage. Simple, affordable, reliable. Let's get into the conversation and welcome Daniel Webster. He's the Bloomberg Professor of American Health and Violence Prevention at Johns Hopkins University. He's also a distinguished scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Gun Violence Solutions. Daniel, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. And joining us from Chicago is Chico Tillman. He's the executive director of the Ready National Center for Safe Communities. The center partners with cities and organizations to provide program support. He's also a senior researcher at the University of Chicago's Crime and Education Lab. Chico, thanks for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. 
Daniel, first, give us a basic understanding of community violence intervention programs. They've been implemented in cities like Chicago, Philadelphia, and Minneapolis, but with different strategies. What are the core tenets? Well, um, they have some similarities and some differences. The most important similarity is that each of these programs, in order for them to be effective, they have to be able to reach the right individuals, the individuals um, that are really at highest risk for being shot or shooting, um, and being able to build trust with those individuals so that you can create some change. Now, some models uh, we refer to principally as violence interruption models. They focus on mediating disputes between individuals or groups that might, uh, without intervention, lead to gunfire. Um, They're also, of course, trying to promote uh, new norms for addressing conflicts and provocations so that fewer people are reaching for guns in those instances. Other programs are, in addition to, to that key outreach and relationship building, are trying to do more to change the lives of the individuals who are at greatest risk. Those programs um, tend to focus on two key things. One is um, they, they apply behavioral change strategies that are used in a variety of kinds of problems that, that try to change how we think and, and respond in situations, particularly those relevant to violence. The other kind of things that uh, uh, these programs are commonly focused on is, um, you know, stable employment. And, um, you know, many individuals are engaged in very high-risk individual uh, uh, activities, um, frankly, out of economic uh, necessity. So some of these programs are trying to stabilize these individuals' lives so that they can meet their needs without using violence. Chico, you worked as a violence interrupter in Chicago in 2012. What did that work look like? It was It's really taxing, but it's rewarding as well. I believe the advantage of interrupters is actually being from the communities that they serve. So they have some knowledge of the individuals they interact with, even though these individuals are at the highest risk. In many cases, they're individuals that we went to school with, neighbors, other community members. So we have some relationship with them prior to engaging them to um, enter into these programs. And we're calling these violence interruption programs. How do you know when and where to, to step in to interact with these individuals? One of the great things about Ready, Ready has three referral pathways. The first, of course, would be um, the criminal justice system, individuals that have had contact with the criminal justice system. On an average, when we did our RCT at Ready, individuals in our program have been arrested 17 times. So these individuals, almost 85% of our individuals have been either shot or shot someone. So these are individuals who have shown uh, or have historical um, context or behaviors that have been caught up in a cycle of violence. In addition to that, one of our other pathways would be we have this um, 
algorithm called social networking that allows that was created by the University of Chicago that allows us to predict an individual, the next group of individuals that would either be shot or have the probability of being a perpetrator of violence. So that's another pathway. And finally, we utilize community referrals because the community knows the individuals who are causing harm or are the drivers of violence in that particular community. I just want to add in a little context for our audience here. You refer to RCT, that's Randomized Controlled Trial, uh, to evaluate the program's effectiveness. And then you mentioned READY. READY Chicago stands for Rapid Employment and Development Initiative. And it's a one-year program that provides um, employment, cognitive behavioral therapy, and skill building for people at highest risk of becoming involved in gun violence. Daniel, there's also the Violence Intervention Program in Baltimore that you've researched. That program, Safe Streets, took place between 2007 and 2021 in 11 different neighborhoods. How did that program work? Yeah, uh, and also just to be clear, that program is still ongoing. Uh, We recently uh, completed an outcome evaluation that looked at data through July of 2022. Basically, uh, this uh, program is uh, uses a, a, a model known in, in this field of work as, as cure violence. Um, as Dr. Tillman was indicating, uh, the individuals who work uh, for Safe Streets in the now 10 neighborhoods where they are working are typically from those communities and they have some history that um, is similar enough to the individuals that they're reaching. Uh, we, we think of them and, and refer to them as credible messengers. Ideally, these, uh, these are individuals who, who may have been involved in some uh, dangerous activities, but stepped away and changed their lives. So they're, they're positive role models. The way the program, again, works is that uh, the, uh, these individuals are engaged primarily with uh, program participants that they build relationships with, but they're really uh, trying to get their pulse on everything that's going on in the community that might be relevant to uh, to conflict that, that might lead to gun violence. They, they work uh, in the hours of the days and evening where uh, shootings are most common, and they're in constant communication with those individuals. So they're trying to identify when conflicts are brewing so that they can step in and try to redirect them so that uh, small things don't become big, big things. The last thing I'll underscore about these programs is that when a shooting does occur, uh, the violent interrupters are doing precisely what their title says. They're trying to prevent the next shooting or retaliatory shooting and really bring a community together to uh, to say no to gun violence. Chico, what kind of training is available to people who, who play that role of violence interrupter in their community? There's two really, um, two or three prevalent methods. Uh, one is the public health approach, um, which TAs or organizations teach individuals how to do mediations, de-escalation, but also help individuals with the case managed component and the data collection component. However, there is um, somewhat of a dearth in the management um, training or the management preparation 
And because we've identified this dearth, the University of Chicago um, Primary Education Lab is actually starting a school for leaders and managers in the field of violence prevention, CVI, as well as police. We're discussing gun violence prevention. In a moment, we hear from North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper about his hopes for violence intervention in his state. We'll be back with more from you and our guests in just a moment. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com slash switch. This message comes from NPR sponsor Warby Parker. Their glasses start at $95, including anti-reflective, scratch-resistant prescription lenses that block 100% of UV rays. Try five pairs of frames at home for free. Go to warbyparker.com slash covered. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts, only from NPR. We're discussing community violence intervention programs. They are programs that work at the community and even individual level to try to prevent gun violence. They've been gaining traction lately as gun legislation continues to stall in Congress. And now let's hear from a governor who recently signed an executive order to create an Office of Violence Prevention. North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper is a Democrat in his second term, and he joins me now to talk about it. Governor Cooper, thanks for your time today. Jen, thank you for tackling this important issue. Look forward to talking with you. Well, last month, North Carolina's Republican-led legislature overrode your veto of a bill loosening gun laws. That law now allows people to buy a pistol without a permit, eliminating the local screening process, though a national background check is still required. One North Carolina gun owner, gun store owner rather, reported a 250% increase in gun sales since the passage of that law. What does this new law mean for your state? Well, it's a tragedy that the Republican Party has been captured by so few people. The vast majority of people in North Carolina and this country believe in common sense reforms that would reduce gun violence. Something's happening every single day. We've seen a dramatic increase in gun violence across our state and country. What this means for North Carolina is that I've been successful over the last four years in keeping them from eliminating our pretty good gun pistol permit law, which added protections for uh, for requiring local sheriffs to do background checks on people before they bought handguns. Now with this permit removed, uh, this is giving people more opportunity to buy guns and to have them. And we're seeing a dramatic increase in the number of guns uh, in our society. Unfortunately, a lot of people who do not know how to use them or use them inappropriately. So what we're doing through executive action is establishing this Office of Violence Prevention. I've also used my 
authority as governor issuing an executive order to put 300,000 criminal convictions that had not been put into the federal background check. Uh, we've put it in there. We've pushed legislation in the General Assembly to go forward, uh, strengthening background checks, uh, red flag laws, uh, which we know allow judges to, uh, through after due process, taking guns away from people who may be a harm to themselves or others who have shown that they were to be violent. But not only did this Republican legislature not do that, they wanted to go backward. And that is frustrating for our state. But what we're hoping is that this Office of Violence uh, Prevention can help us get into communities at the root of violence and make a difference. I I've spent time, Jen, going across our state talking to people directly. We've convened law enforcement, health officials. And by the way, this is a public health issue as well. It, it, is, not, it is not just a crime issue. It's a public mm -hmm. health issue. Now, Governor Cooper, what kind of violence prevention are you most interested in employing? So we have seen things like the Gate City Coalition in Greensboro. Uh, we had Ingrid Bell come and, and talk to us about intervention programs that work to de-escalate, that work to mediate conflicts in communities. Uh, she had a family victim who was killed uh, in, a, in a gun violence situation. She decided she was going to do something about it. She's put this organization in place. They are meeting people in their community who are most likely to be victims of or perpetrators of gun violence. They're working to mediate their issues, to refer them to services. And over the last three years in the area that had seen a very high number of, of gunshot violence situations, uh, they have been able to significantly reduce it. And we're going to take this Office of Violence Prevention and help to replicate programs like these across our state, share data, make sure that people across North Carolina understand about evidence-based programs that are proven to work. This office is going to work to apply for federal funds and philanthropic funds to, to provide help in these communities. And we're excited about the potential. You know, when you, when you talk to an emergency room physician and she looks at you and says with a tear in her eye that it changes your life when you're having to put pressure on the bullet wound in a four-year-old, uh, this is unacceptable. With the, the rapid increase that we're seeing is absolutely unacceptable, and we have to do what we can to, to change things here. And this is, this is one of the efforts that I think helps get to the root of the violence problem uh, in, in our communities. You mentioned the interruption part of the work, but you also talked about referrals to services for people who are at high risk of being involved in violence. What specific services would they get access to? Well, first is substance use disorder. I'm very proud in North Carolina, even with this Republican legislature, uh, that we have expanded Medicaid 
in, in our state. That's going to significantly increase services for mental health and for substance use disorder and getting people into those programs are helpful. Job referral programs have been one of the most important uh, uh, useful resources that we have seen. And, and right now, as businesses are challenged for their workforce and they are looking for people to, to work, uh, I, I've been a strong proponent of second chance hiring and have issued executive orders about that. And by second chance hiring, you mean hiring people who might have a criminal record? Yes. And oftentimes you do when you're in intervention situations and communities, you have people who are in gangs or who have been involved in, in, in violence and they may have a criminal record. We are seeing more and more businesses out of necessity uh, look for ways to expand their workforce. And this is one of the very best, most effective ways to expand a workforce because you you have someone who, who is ready to turn their life around and who is committed to doing it can end up being one of the best employees that you have. And we we have been able also to get bipartisan legislation that does some record expungement. We need to do more, but we we think it's critically important and we know that people with criminal records can't have every job but and there's some sensitive jobs that they can't but we do know there are plenty of opportunities out there and now with this workforce shortage that we have across our state and country this is the perfect time to really rev up these programs to get people uh, referred into employment which is one of the best ways to, to prevent violence. You created the Office of Violence Prevention for your state through executive order. How much can you ensure on your own as governor that that office is properly resourced, that it has the funding it needs? It, it will be a challenge. But the good thing about the Biden administration is that we have had significant federal funds coming into North Carolina. We've been able to use some of those for efforts like these. This Office of Violence Prevention will also look for uh, private nonprofit donations and strategies that we can use to, to make sure it's resourced. For example, uh, in, in North Carolina, you have about more than 40% of people own guns, and that number is growing. And we already know that over half of those people have guns in their home that are not safely secured and that are loaded. So one of the things our Office of Violence Prevention is doing, we're already starting this effort, is we have a safe storage campaign that we're going to launch called NC Safe, uh, Secure All Firearms Effectively is what it stands for. And letting a lot of people who are buying these guns, they're, they're doing it out of fear, they're doing it out of curiosity, uh, but many of them don't know how important it is to secure them. And for example, uh, this campaign will talk about the different places that people can store guns in communities. For example, when you're having the grandkids over for a week or you have someone in the home that may have suicidal thoughts or you're putting your home up for sale and you know that that strangers will be coming through your home. There are different times where you would want to get guns out of the home and having a place 
for to put them as important and and then just teaching people how to store them because we know that suicides are up we know that children sometimes find these guns and there've been so, so many tragic accidents one of the things i continue to pound here is that gun violence and death by gunfire has surpassed car accidents as the number one cause of injury death of children. And if that doesn't tell us something that we have to act, I don't know what does. That's North Carolina Governor Roy Cooper. Governor Cooper, thank you for speaking with us today. Thank you, Jen. We got this email from Michael who writes, I agree that preventing death and injury by firearms is a local and state issue. At the federal level, there are political issues that one party uses against the other to score points. And after hearing from the governor, I'd love to hear from each of you about whether you think we're at a place where any solutions for this are really going to have to happen at the local level. Chico, I'll come to you first. The first thing is that I applaud the governor for creating an Office of Violence Prevention because he recognized there is a problem and he's creating a strategy or putting components in place to create a strategy to do something about it. Now, with violence, there's one challenge that um, many people um, are having with this. They are trying to put the onus or responsibility on one entity And I think that can be harmful or a mistake. It takes a collective effort to move the needle of gun violence. I believe in the public health approach. I believe in shared responsibility. I believe in the same manner that we attack and mitigated the challenges of COVID, we have to do the same with gun violence, meaning the people in this space will lead, but others have to participate in order to truly quell violence. There has to be individuals from all sectors of the ecosystem contributing to um, the decrease in violence to see significant increase. And what that looks like is the individuals in CVI actually hitting it head on, but there have to be a continuum of care when we find the unique needs that that are at the root cause of violence for these individuals. There has to be employment. There has to be, as the governor talked about, substance use disorder. There has to be mental health facilities. There has to be housing. There has to be this collective effort in order to quell violence. And more importantly, there has to be guardianship. People have to start collectively um, saying we're not going to tolerate this anymore and change the cultural norm. And by CVI, you mean community violence intervention. Daniel, I'm going to hear your thoughts as well. Yeah, uh, Chico said it uh, quite well. The problem, of course, is felt most locally, and there is the most urgency to act within the communities most impacted and in the, and at the city or county level. Uh, there, there are many opportunities to make important improvements and investment in community violence intervention and other strategies uh, that go beyond just uh, you know what we're talking about specifically today with these program models. Um, but as Chico was saying, um, we sh- yes, there are political challenges, but we need accountability at all levels of govern- government and at all forms, uh, all parts of our government. Uh, we are at crisis level when, uh, when it comes to gun violence in this country. And 
we accordingly. Chico, you've mentioned taking a public health approach to gun violence prevention um, a couple of times. Explain what that approach looks like in practice. There's two different ways to look at it. From the traditional street outreach, it is to um, detect and interrupt, um, to change behaviors of individuals. And the last step would be to change the cultural, change the cultural norms. However, there's a, also an additional four-step approach um, in public health, which seeks to test, test the situation, to create an intervention, to test it, to modify it, and then scale it. So I believe both, both particular ways of looking at it are correct, but I really think we need the collective buy-in. Um, I see we are getting some support at the federal level, which is supporting the local level. But I think the key is sustainability. We we can't look at this as a one and done. We have to look at it more from a perspective of creating this as a line item, as a necessity, and not a supplement. And I think once we begin to think of it like that, we can really begin to move the needle. Coming up, we hear more about the public health model of gun violence prevention. We'll be back with more in a moment. Support for this NPR podcast and the following message come from Amgen, a biotechnology pioneer leading the fight against the world's toughest diseases such as cancer, heart disease, asthma, and osteoporosis. In a new era of human health, Amgen continues to accelerate the pace of change, operating sustainably and drawing upon deep knowledge of science to push beyond what's known today. With each decade, they reliably deliver powerful new therapies to patients. Learn more at Amgen.com. On this week's episode of Wildcard, comedian Bowen Yang says you don't have to feel bad for falling short on mindfulness. I get in my own way by, like, over-privileging the present. That's so interesting because everyone wants to be in the present. I feel like being present is overrated. I'm Rachel Martin. Join us for NPR's Wildcard podcast, the game where cards control the conversation. Now let's get back to our discussion on community violence intervention programs. Daniel, I'd like to hear a little bit more from you about the public health aspect of violence intervention work. Thank you. Um, yes, yeah, since I teach a, a course in the School of Public Health on violence prevention, it's great to be able to talk about this. Community violence intervention is one aspect of a public health approach, but at its core, a public health approach is about changing conditions that promote violence or or allow violence. That includes uh, better, more effective gun laws. It, it includes addressing uh, housing issues. Um, it, it includes addressing uh, what many communities with high rates of violence have is an oversaturation of alcohol outlets uh, with um, uh, inadequate uh, access to uh, safe uh, and healthy food, uh, um, environmental lead. There's so many things in the environments in communities most impacted by violence that we can change. Research shows that when you do change those conditions, you significantly reduce violence. So that is part of a public health approach. So th- this is part of what always um I suppose befuddles me a bit is that there is a, there is a body of research that shows what works, and what I'm hearing from both you and Chico is it's about taking a more holistic approach 
to violence prevention in communities. It's not just a set of laws or this group interacting. The research is there, but the policies and funding for these solutions doesn't follow. Do you think it's just politics or something else at work? Chico? One of the challenges is most of the violence occurs in um, vulnerable communities, impoverished communities, communities that have been neglected and not invested in. So when you think about investment typically in these communities, even as they think about the violence problem, usually the investment is meager. One of the conversations we were able to have um, to push the White House into investing in violence intervention was talking about the violence problem from a national level. And when we look at it nationally, the violence problem is around close to a trillion dollars over five years, over a trillion dollars, like really around $1.5 trillion. So when we had the conversation about investment, and they were talking about $90 million, $900 million over 10 years or $90 million a year, we were saying that's $90 million isn't going to min- mitigate a trillion-dollar problem. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that's the challenge right there. When you think about a space where you haven't invested in, it's inconceivable for... Um, politicians to think about investing in those communities and that neglected or isolated population. Daniel, anything to add? Yeah, uh, I'll just acknowledge that absolutely this is a political problem, and that's what I teach my students. Uh, If you're going to address a a really entrenched problem like gun violence, yeah, there, there are politics connected to it. But I think it's also just simply has to do with how we communicate and think about the problem. And for uh, a very long time, we've thought about this simply as a bad person problem. And our solution to bad people is to incarcerate them. I am not someone who thinks we should never incarcerate anyone or we don't need police or anything like that. But this is a complex problem. And uh, we, we know from the available evidence that there are many ways to address this problem of, of gun violence, and it's not just a bad person problem. If that is the case, you know, if you just compare the United States rates for homicides versus other high-income countries, we have a eight, are eight times as high as the average high-income nation for, for homicides and 25 times as high rate for gun homicides. We are not that intrinsically more violent than other nations. But our set of policies, whether we're talking about guns or structural racism and uh, equity issues, uh, we, we, we don't look so good. So we're going to have to address these issues and think about the problem not as a, solely as a bad person problem, but we have not created conditions for communities to be safe. That is how we should think about the problem. Chico, according to a ProPublica report, Ready Chicago costs roughly $25,000 per participant. How, explain that cost. What, what are you paying for? I love when they bring up the expense of Ready. 
when you think about Ready Chicago, we pay about $25,000, really maybe a little bit more than that a year. But one of the things they neglect to think about is we give individuals about $400 a week to survive. So part of that money is for just we, income. We yeah, we, we actually we get individual stipends to enroll in programming and to deter them from maladaptive or criminal criminogenic behavior. So we're actually asking individuals to halt whatever um, activities they might be involved in negatively or criminally. And we give them money to some, and if you think about $400 a week, these individuals have families, um, have apartments, uh, have issues. It's not a lot of money. Um, and, and when you think about the effectiveness, it saves for every dollar about 180000 That's the ROI. As much as 180000 because these individuals now are being empowered with situational decision-making that's uh, preventing or stopping them from committing violent crimes. Each homicide is a million dollars, over a million dollars for the city. And investing $400 a week to change these individual lives, and it's only for a small period of time because these individuals go into transitional jobs and into permanent jobs. But we want to... Help, help these individuals prior to that. Well, and I want to understand the the money piece of this a little bit more. So when you say the ROI, the return on investment is, I think you said 108000 or 180000 are those costs related to possible incarceration or, or something else? If you think about a homicide holistically, the police arrive, police investigation, court calls, ambulance, Hospital stay, all of those costs are over a million dollars. So for each dollar invested and ready, it saves roughly $180,000. 70% of the individuals um, that were involved in ready had no had no justice impact while in ready. 90% weren't involved in any violent behavior while being in ready. Now, in in February, the Department of Justice announced $230 million in grants to give to states to set up violence prevention programs. And Chico, you help programs around the country get funding. How far will that money go? What will it be able to provide? I I think it's a great seed. It's a great start. Um, It'll it'll introduce people to a complementary strategy to support policing. I think a lot of times They try to create an adverse situation between CBI and policing, but actually we support policing so that they can be more narrowly focused on situations that um, are elevated or violent crimes. So I think we have a short period to prove it works because my, my, my honest belief is that once we prove it works, it'll be hard not to invest in it. And once they see the overall savings, because of the investment, then they'll um, be more likely to continue and invest in it. Daniel, how much is that research piece part of what's holding these programs back from getting the support they need? Yeah, so um, I, I want to be clear that there is an evidence base. There is research on many of these programs. Uh, but some of the newer programs, like Ready, for example, uh, we just have uh, one Randomized trial now. Uh, w- 
we need more data. Uh, but I, I completely agree with Chico that the evidence will be powerful in the ability to sustain and and um, ideally grow these programs. And, you know, what we've been learning from studying these programs, I, I guess my takeaway message is that these programs clearly can make a significant reduction in gun violence with an impressive return on investment. We should acknowledge, however, that it is really not guaranteed. These programs are not easy to do. You can't just pull them off the shelf, plug and play, and be guaranteed that you're going to get this response. So we've been studying the programs in Baltimore now since 2007. We see some remarkable success stories, really incredible, but in other neighborhoods, less so. So we know that these programs, um, look, they're going into some of the most challenged, disinvested communities uh, with relatively modest investment with the violence interrupters. And uh, often they need more to, to be effective. We got this message from John in Silver Spring who emails, I also want to note that there are training programs for people to learn skills for assessing, de-escalating and diffusing harmful or inappropriate behavior and for nonviolent communication. The trainings can be in person or online. And Kim emails, we're very lucky to have an organization, Promise Neighborhoods of the Lehigh Valley, that runs on a public health credible messenger model of violence prevention. The leader and facilitator runs an amazingly welcoming, intentionally inclusive organization that truly engages in the heart of the Allentown community. Uh, Professor Webster, turning back to the research part of this, what have you learned about when these programs work and and when they when they aren't as effective? Well, honestly, Jen, that's something that we're uh, really just beginning to explore in a most in-depth way. We're beginning a, a next phase of research in Baltimore uh, now with um, Actually, a doctoral student uh, of mine is going to be leading that, Carla Tilchin. And then we have a new study uh, uh, just funded to examine community violence intervention programs in the District of Columbia. And we're going to be quite intentional about measuring all the different ways in in which each site uh, is going about their work and the challenges that they face and how they're responding. So I think there's more to learn. A lot of what I learn, honestly, I, you know, I listen to people like Chico Tillman, Eric Cumberbatch, and other people who have been doing the work for a long time. And, um, you know, the takeaway from what I've been learning from the people engaged in it is, um, like any endeavor, you really have to manage and uh, uh, the, the programs and resource them accordingly. And, Typically, when you're seeing failures, uh, you you have some combination of poor management and inadequate resources. Well, Chico, I want to return back to something you said earlier about sustainability, because sometimes people do well while they're in the program, but they return to previous behavior. And you're using cognitive behavioral therapy in ready. Just explain about what that long-term outlook looks like. What do you need to ensure that someone changes that behavior, but changes it permanently? Permanent change is an individual choice. But what I do believe, empowerment supports change. A great example would be if I often use, if you asked me to travel to New York and I got in my car and was on my way and I had to do this interview and then you say, hey, Chico, 
where you at the interview about to start? And I say, I'm, I'm in the car. I'm on my way. You say, why didn't you take a plane? And so you reschedule. And the next time I take a plane, I say, man, this I got here in an hour. This makes more sense than driving 24 hours. The next time I go to New York, I'm going by plane, not because of what you taught me, but because you gave me the empowerment or the knowledge to make better decisions. And that's what Ready does. We don't do behavior change in the sense of just sharing information so that the person um, will have new tools. We empower them so that the decisions make more sense. And also the key, not only do we have to help them cognitively, they have to get sociogenic properties as well. A job, married, housing. Now you have hope and something to lose. And that's the biggest thing right there. That sociogenic properties and that's what we help them along the way um, obtain so that now when they're in these situations, they have something to lose. Well, we'll continue to follow your work, and we'd love to have you back um, as this research continues to develop. That's Chico Tillman, the executive director of the Ready National Center for Safe Communities. He's also a senior researcher at the University of Chicago's Crime and Education Lab. And Daniel Webster, the Bloomberg Professor of American Health and Violence Prevention at Johns Hopkins University. He's also a distinguished scholar at the Johns Hopkins Center for Gun Violence Solutions. Thanks to you both. Today's producer was Michelle Harvin. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening. We'll talk again tomorrow. This is 1A. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viking, committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, destination-focused dining, and cultural enrichment on board and on shore. And every Viking voyage is all-inclusive with no children and no casinos. Discover more at Viking.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify's there to help you grow. Sell without needing to code or design. Just bring your best ideas and Shopify will help you open up shop. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash NPR. This message comes from Wired on Wired Politics Lab you will be guided through the exciting, challenging, and sometimes entertaining vortex of internet extremism, conspiracies, and disinformation. Listen to Wired Politics Lab wherever you get your podcasts.